evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome to Green Templeton College and to the first of the four Green Templeton uh, lectures for, for this year. Um, we're rather relieved that the coalition has lasted long enough for this, <laughs> for this, for this topic still to be um, um, operative, and uh, it certainly is a topic that seems to have caught people's imagination across the main areas that we're going to be looking at in health, in education, and in and in terms of the justice system. We've also, I think, accidentally chosen almost the perfect day <laughs> to, to head off our, with our discussion of, of, of health and the coalition's approach to, um, to the future there. And I can't think of anybody um, more qualified to help us get inside some of the intricacies and some of the possibilities that are happening here. It's a very great pleasure for me personally to welcome Professor Sir John Took to deliver the first of the, of the Green Templeton Lectures. You, I'm sure, in this audience will be well aware of, 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 of John's um, major contributions across a wide range of medically related areas, as a clinician himself, as a medical scientist, and in terms of the, the areas where we've worked most closely together, as a medical educator. And John is now Vice Provost for Health at um, uh, University College London, but also extremely engaged across the NHS and with the with the scientific um, uh, community. So John, it's a warm welcome to you. Um, John's going to address us for about 40 minutes and then has kindly agreed to take some, some questions on the basis of the Chatham House rule. <laughs> Over to you, John. Well, Thank you very much, David, for that uh, kind uh, introduction. And can I congratulate you on your prescience of uh, choosing today as the day that uh, this, uh, this talk is given. Um, I'm very grateful also for the opportunity to review the white paper, uh, reflect on it. And what I intend to do over the next uh, 35 minutes or so is firstly, give something of the background as to the challenges that all health economies face because it's in that context that we need to interpret the significance of the, uh, the, the, the reforms. I then want to pose the question how well do the proposals rise to those challenges and then thirdly work out what we might need to do to work with the grain of the proposals in other words, live with the coalition, uh, to use your language, uh, to see if we can uh, improve uh, the health service. But first, uh, to the challenges, and these will be uh, familiar to you. If they weren't familiar to you, they will have been familiar with you after, to you after today, because both David Cameron and I suspect Andrew Lamsley will have alluded uh, to these factors, which are a challenge for all health economies, demography, uh, the economy itself, uh, and then cost drivers which you can think of in terms of burgeoning technology uh, and public expectation. And the important point is that all of these uh, are linked. They're linked, in a sense, uh, to demand uh, and supply. Can we create uh, the financial status within the country to afford uh, the demands that are placed uh, upon the health service. 
Demography, we're all aware that our population uh, is aging. This is a projection of the growth uh, by 2033, so within what, 23 years' time. And you can see from this Christmas tree image just how uh, a much greater the elderly population will become. I suppose I'm here, one of the baby boomers, and I'm, if I'm lucky, I'll be a blip a little way further up so that you can see the number of 85-year-olds will more than double uh, by that point in time, with huge social consequences as well as health consequences. Unfortunately, we, as we age, other things happen, so something like 40% of people over the age of 85 can be projected uh, to have dementia. Currently, three-quarters of a million people in this country with dementia by 2050, uh, it's estimated that that number will, will more than double. That is a huge burden for social uh, and health care to uh, accommodate. With no immediate prospect of any medical uh, cure or alleviation for this condition. Of course, it's not simply a, a question of age. It's the fact that lifestyle changes are fueling the generation of uh, the so-called chronic diseases. And obesity is the major factor here. I, some of you will have seen the Sunday Times, uh, the fact that some 30% uh, of babies within the first year in life uh, in the UK are now uh, thought to be overweight or obese. So this is something that's riven through our society. And it's uh, uh, no great credit to us that the red line here is the English trajectory, so we're soon to become uh, the champions of Europe uh, in this regard. And it's the very fact that obesity fuels um, several of the major chronic diseases. Uh, it's relevant, of course, to cardiovascular disease, uh, the principal cause uh, of death. It underlies a lot of cancer mortality. And collectively, the chronic, disease, the chronic diseases that increase in prevalence as you age uh, are by far and away now the biggest health burden that not only developed nations uh, have to deal with, but also developing countries as well. Now, that's one thing. That's the demography. That's the burden of chronic disease. But with ageing comes the very fact that uh, you have a lower proportion uh, of your population that is a tax earner. And so if we look at the tax earner uh, beneficiary ratio, the number of people contributing taxes uh, to those that are essentially consuming them through uh, health needs and other needs, when the NHS was devised, there was about six tax earners for one beneficiary. The ratio is now uh, approximately four to one uh, and is likely to get worse as that ageing <coughs> profile of our population worsens, worsens. And extending the retirement age by one year is not going to make a, a huge difference uh, to that uh, equation. Cost drivers other than age and this burden of chronic disease are, as I've already alluded to, the burgeoning uh, of technology. And I've just mentioned a few of the likely um, factors here. 
as the consequences of the capacity to sequence the genome, feed through into clinical care, uh, that too will have attendant costs. Regenerative medicine, stem cells, uh, the implications of that for medical practice are yet to be seen uh, at scale, but surely will bring uh, costs with them. And then the, the idea that one can not simply uh, try and influence lifestyle related disease by changing people's lifestyle, but the people may demand <coughs> medical solutions for that. And if you think that's uh, unlikely, this is a, a comment, I'm a, I'm a diabetologist by, by background, and those of you that are physicians or, or GPs will all know that you have patients who say to you, well, it's not what I do, doctor, it's, it's my genes or it's my, something wrong with my glands that makes me this weight. And of course, we all know those people were deluding themselves. Or do we? Or do we? Because work at my previous uh, institution, at the Peninsula Medical School, was involved in identifying the so-called FTO gene, which one in six people in this room will have the uh, two risk alleles and if you have those two risk alleles for the gene you're likely to be three kilograms more than you otherwise would be and you're nearly twice as likely to be obese. So there you are, you're all relieved of responsibility because there is now a biological explanation or potentially one for you. Now the point of this story is that once we understand, and this is the real consequence of the genomic uh, revolution, once we understand how that gene works, and it probably works through an influence on satiety, on the fullness center, then you can bet your bottom dollar someone will devise a treatment which will manipulate that and which will be demanded. So that, that's the point uh, of bringing this up. Now the net consequence of this for all OECD countries is that health spend has increased disproportionately to the growth in GDP <coughs> over the last 30 or 40 years. So this is the total, this is the GDP, the orange line, and there's this divergence as approximately 2% per annum more uh, is spent uh, on um, health uh, than the growth uh, in GDP. And if you extrapolate these curves, say, for the United States, <coughs> by mid-century, you would conclude that some 40% of GDP uh, would be spent on health if nothing else changed. So you can see why all economies are struggling with how you come to terms uh, with this particular dilemma of increasing demand, increasing cost, and yet less resource potentially available uh, to pay for it. These are the data for uh, the, the UK, uh, and if you look at the red line, which is the combination of private and NHS investment uh, in health um, versus the European spend as a percentage of GDP, uh, and you can see this kick up um, during the labour years, the uh, now well-known 
massive increase in NHS spending uh, during uh, that period um, to a point where we're equivalent to the European average or close to the European average in terms of the percentage of GDP uh, that is now spent on health. <coughs> even pre-recession, even pre-recession, as this huge increased investment tailed off, as indeed was, was the plan it would, people were predicting that there was going to be a gap between the projected health funding calculated based on a number of reasonable assumptions in my view uh, and, the, um, and the likely uh, growth requirements uh, of the NHS. This was a report commissioned admittedly by the private health insurer uh, Bupa um, and but the assumptions as I say I believe are reasonable and estimated a need for some 5% growth with a projected likely growth of 3.5% re resulting in a funding gap of some 11 billion pounds or some 10% of the NHS budget by 2015 and predicted that this would have deleterious effects on waiting lists, uh, reduction in staff would be required and perhaps related to the uh, interests of the, um, the precipitator of the report uh, would accelerate uh, a, de a demand for some co-payment form uh, of system. Now I emphasise these were predictions that were being made pre-recession uh, before the need for uh, major cuts in uh, public spending uh, became apparent. Now you might argue that it's uh, fine to have this massive investment in the health service if our outcomes were now exceptional as well. The sad truth which uh, the Prime Minister alluded to uh, this morning however is that if you take for example our cancer outcomes um, we are 16th out of these 20 uh, European countries Czechoslovakia, Slovenia and Poland do marginally worse than us but they spend uh, between a half and a third uh, of what we spend uh, on our health service. So it's not a particularly uh, good result when you consider the massive investment uh, that has been made. And in my uh, new role at UCL I'm struck by the fact that we have exceptional tertiary care services for cancer uh, in the hospitals I relate to and yet North Central London the area subserved has some some of the worst outcomes uh, in England. You know there's a real dichotomy here, a real cause uh, for concern which has to say something about the nature of our health service. And it's not simply outcomes uh, as a generalisation, it's the fact that although the NHS puts itself uh, on a pillar uh, and has equity of provision as one of its founding principles, we still have gross uh, social inequality uh, in relationship to health. Many of you have seen this slide before. This is the decline in life expectancy as you go eastward along the Jubilee Line, where you lose one year in life expectancy for each stop 
uh, as you travel east, which is quite frankly scandalous that in our country we have uh, that degree of distinction. And in recent years, uh, social inequalities in health have actually worsened rather than improved. So uh, there remains a very real problem uh, which we need to address. So before I move on to what the coalition or what the, uh, the, the uh, parties that make up the coalition proposed, let me propose to you that there are, there are actually probably four ways that you can deal with this dilemma of demand and supply uh, of cost uh, and achieving the resource and structuring a health service to combat that challenge. And they can be characterised as mistrust, trust, choice and voice. Okay, mistrust, trust, choice and voice. Mistrust is when you say, well, we don't want to, this is so important, government has to control it uh, and has to regulate how things are done. Trust is when, if you accept that it's actually healthcare professionals who deliver um, the health service and therefore you have to impart them with a responsibility to rise to these challenge. Choice, the idea of uh, the market, of competition driving up quality and voice, engaging properly uh, the public people uh, in their health and health service. So let's see how that plays out. The Conservatives committed pre-election to increase health spending uh, in real terms every year to 2015. They did highlight this desire that all hospitals became foundation trusts. They wanted to offshore the NHS by making it uh, making an independent NHS board distinct from uh, the Department of Health, implement payment for results throughout the NHS, remove process targets and focus on, on quality uh, outcomes and that's something too that is seen in the, in the Liberals manifesto. Allow greater choice of any healthcare provider that meets NHS standards. Liberals were the ones who put up the idea of scrapping strategic health authorities. The liberal construct of democracy create de democratically elected local health boards with the power to prevent hospital closures. Patient contracts allowing people to understand what they might expect from the NHS, allowing some choice, patients to register at more than one practice, uh, 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 and so forth. Now, of course, that was synthesised, as we now know, in uh, the white paper, of which there are three principal components. There's first the idea that patients and local communities are at the heart of the NHS. There is this collective commitment to improving outcomes and quality standards and thirdly empowering healthcare professionals and local organisations. So choice and voice uh, and a, a degree of trust are riven through uh, these proposals. And the central mantra is 
no decision uh, about me without me. The idea that somehow uh, the patient uh, is put in control through greater access to information uh, and the uh, ability to exercise choice. And I'll come back to that core principle uh, in due course. This is the organogram. Um, and you'll note that, as uh, was promised by the Conservatives, I'm sorry, the NHS commissioning board at the centre is offshored from the Department of Health, which will oversee uh, the commissioning process. But the key change, and one that has created perhaps more comment than any other, is the box with all the arrows going to and from it, which is the, the GP commissioning consortia. <coughs> this is the construct uh, to replace PCTs uh, of um, commissioning in the hands uh, of local groups uh, of uh, general practitioners who will commission providers, both um, NHS and others, if appropriate. Um, and finally, the idea that there will be a local partnership with local authorities informed by local health watch to oversee this um, uh, the, the, the local provision and its uh, and its adequacy. So just to go through some of the detail, abolition within that organogram of the pre-existing primary care trust, the current commissioning agencies and the strategic, the 10 strategic health authorities. So removal of that regional layer uh, of uh, strategy uh, and oversight. A firm commitment that every trust will become uh, a foundation trust, or if it doesn't, then something else will happen uh, to it. A commitment to improving health outcomes using an outcomes framework uh, informed by an extended role for NICE, which will produce quality standards for areas of activity, such as uh, improving um, survival, uh, such as improving the quality of life of those people with uh, long-lasting conditions, with chronic disease, uh, and improving uh, the recovery from intercurrent illness uh, and injury. injury clearly quite difficult to separate that type of process from one uh, of target setting, uh, but by couching it broadly in those terms rather than, specific, rather than specifics and leaving the achievement of those um, outcomes to the providers rather than dictating how it's done is said to be the distinction from the current system. And then a system whereby payment follows clinical performance, not simply uh, activity. Uh, and again, that is highly reliant on developing proper quality outcomes that are, are measurable uh, and um, can be responded to. I mentioned that a fundamental to practice-based commissioning through GP consortia is this idea uh, that the GP uh, is entrusted to take on that core function uh, on behalf uh, of the health service. And I th think this is something that we, we do need to consider uh, in some 
uh, detail. There is also a commitment to a ring-fenced public health budget, incredibly important if we're going to influence the prevention uh, and social environment uh, in which many of these chronic diseases find their, their origins. There's a commitment to ring-fence some 6% <coughs> of the uh, healthcare budget, um, which will be overseen by newly appointed directors of public health who will report to uh, the chief <coughs> officer. And then de democratic legitimacy, uh, a strong liberal value with local authorities promoting the joining up uh, of NHS services, uh, social care and provision for health improvement. I was at a, a dinner the other night with, with uh, Stephen Dorrell, who um, a former health minister, uh, who was, uh, has, been, has been involved in, in chairing uh, a review of, of the proposals. And he pointed out that although much is said about these white paper reforms being uh, <coughs> the most radical change in the NHS uh, since its inception. He maintains that the biggest contextual change that we're facing is not the structural reform, it's the very fact that over the next four years the NHS has got to accommodate a 4% efficiency saving per annum uh, at four years running, uh, resulting in £20 billion of efficiency saving uh, by 2014. And all of this has to happen in the context of a 45% reduction uh, in management costs. So that, in his view, is what is the, the real challenge that the, the NHS uh, is currently facing. Now, you've heard some of the responses to these proposals uh, today, those of you that have been listening to the media, and it's fair to say there's a, a degree of scepticism about the, the pace and scale of change and how this might uh, be accommodated. <coughs> Concerns that nowhere has achieved efficiency gains uh, of this magnitude. Um, Concerns that uh, general practitioners, able though they are, may not be equipped to take on the challenge that's been faced, uh, placed uh, before them. For me, and of course, secondary care clinicians will stereotypically will be concerned about another part of the health service, primary care, uh, being in the driving seat. And perhaps many of you may think, well, just as well after the secondary care hasn't got it entirely right. But for me, one of the most compelling critiques came from Roger Jones, himself a general practitioner and editor of the British Journal of General Practice, who in his editorial points out that the actual the tribal relationship, as he termed it, between primary and secondary care, this, this divide that exists because of uh, commissioning, uh, because of a purchase of provider split, because we, although we, we work across, we try and work across the continuum, we don't do that particularly well. That, these changes don't address that fundamental problem and indeed one could argue they actually aggravate them by putting the boot on the other foot if I can put it uh, in those crude terms. And unless one 
addresses that issue, then it's very difficult to see how one will provide uh, integrated care. Why is the, this belief that, it, that in trust that a professional group, general practitioners, can actually uh, achieve this role? Well, here's a, a doctor visiting somebody at home, and this picture to me embodies uh, trust. This was probably in an era when little could be done for the child with pneumococcal pneumonia or whatever the prevailing uh, condition was. The anxious parent looking on the concerned practitioner. This is another image uh, of a general practitioner. This is one. This book inspired me when I was a, a, a medical student. The idea of this um, this pluripotent doctor. Note that they're a man. Of course, they all were then, but now it's more likely to be uh, a woman. There he is. He's about to do some operation, probably uh, in a in, in a non-hospital uh, environment, capable of everything, the, the stalwart figure within society, um, you know, the paragon of, uh, of virtue, socially connected within his environment and an extremely important person. And of course that idea still prevails uh, in many quarters. The white paper to me um, sums that up in a way and it, it puts, does put the general practitioner uh, on something of a, a pedestal. Primary care professionals coordinate all the service patients receive, helping them to navigate the system and ensure they get the best care. Now, at what, one level, you could say that that is a, a somewhat patronising approach uh, that uh, it, that is being adopted. If I ask my children what they want of their health service, they don't want somebody who they think is guiding them, who is um, leading them through a, a, a maze. They want to be in control. Uh, they don't want somebody else to be in control of their health. Now that may be, an, that may be the naivety of youth, but I suspect the generations that will follow most of us will be much more demanding in terms of the control they want over uh, the health environment and the health care uh, that they get. And if I have one major concern about uh, the proposals that are put forward, it's actually that they've not gone far enough, that they've not taken that radical step and put more power in the hands uh, of individual people to determine uh, their fate, but have assumed that an element of the health service can play that role for them. And it could be argued that general practitioners uh, are conflicted. They're also providers of care as well as commissioners. Of course, general practice uh, already acts uh, as a gatekeeper. It's one of the traditional roles in which, whereby a health service contains cost is by having that's a, a portal or a, a, a gatekeeper function at some point in the, uh, in, in the system. And therefore, they could, they could act as uh, a barrier to the realisation uh, of patient choice, of real patient choice, if the patients were genuinely informed. Many general practitioners have little commissioning uh, experience, uh, although, of course, uh, there are um, current uh, exploratory models of this system. 
and uh, I think as Andrew Lansley himself has said soon there will be about a third of general practices have been involved in some way and um, it's certainly the case that no, uh, no medical students and, and few postgraduate trainees will have had much experience in terms of the skills required to uh, undertake uh, a commissioning uh, function. So with that background, let me just explore briefly the um, strengths and weaknesses that I perceive in these arrangements. Firstly, strengths. Trust, acknowledgement of the importance uh, of clinical leadership. You can't overcome the barriers to clinical effectiveness unless clinicians who are responsible for care uh, are able to influence the local care around them. It can't be imposed top-down, so this recognition that clinical leadership and engagement is critical uh, is, uh, I believe, a, a fundamental recognition. Commensurate with that is a reduction in central command and control. Provider freedoms, also uh, strength, uh, and the acknowledgement of the importance of public and preventive health, I think, has got to be good. The weaknesses, in my view, is that this can potentially, unless GP consortia act very closely with providers and secondary care and specialist services, this can very easily aggravate primary-secondary divide rather than facilitating service integration. And if I have a particular concern about this, it relates to my prior experience of, uh, of GP fund holding. In 1987, I was appointed as a, uh, a, a district diabetologist in the Exeter local area health authority. Some of you will remember those structures. <laughs> and I was, there was no diabetes service and I was asked to establish an integrated diabetes service. Um, and with, together with GP colleagues, I think we established uh, a good model of care, district register, community-based retinal screening, etc., etc. GP fund holding came along and the integrated care was destroyed because some GPs would feel it was more appropriate to get people's eyes screened at the high street optometrists, with which I have no problem, apart from the fact that that destroyed the capacity to get everybody on the district register, which enables us to provide coordinated and the best chance of equitable care for the, for the, for the majority. So pers my personal experience, perhaps, prejudices me in the way that I, I view this, these latest developments. Removal of a layer of oversight and coordination at a probably quite a rational level is a potential, potential weakness. And as I've mentioned already, it doesn't fully impair patients. The opportunities, quality outcomes as the driver and promotion of public care, health. Then the threats. If you're going to take 45% of management costs out, it's not clear to me where the management of this uh, complex process uh, comes from. And we all know that restructuring can be diversionary. You focus on the process of restructuring rather than the day job. PCTs are, uh, have, have been coalesced in, in recent years to try and get to a scale 
at which they can develop the skill base to actually do a very difficult function. Uh, in London, we've gone from, I think it's uh, tens of PCTs down to six sectors, and that's been a major advance in terms of developing coherent services. Potentially, with GP Consortia, we're going to fragment further and end up with smaller uh, commissioning units which increase the chance of localism uh, and increase the chance of a postcode lottery, uh, in, in my view. There's a lack of uh, commissioning skills, which if acknowledged mean that you have to buy in or create that capacity, which is going to be an attendant cost uh, to the service. Fragmentation rather than integration I've referred to. And there is, of course, the danger of fall in provider performance final thing I'll say is that on this topic is that it is argued that we will, given this, given this challenge, uh, given the burning platform we're standing on, this will promote an innovation culture. We will innovate our way out of this. My concern about that is that safety has been such a major quality driver uh, for the NHS over the last decade or so and we have been subject to so much command, central command and control that the innovative ethos is not as well developed uh, as it needs to be to make the type of uh, adaption uh, that is genuinely uh, required. Final threats, um, the money that could have been used to facilitate transformation has been spent. Um, we did more, we did it better you could argue that um, the targets and threat culture, targets and terror culture, has actually produced a result. Uh, but the money's been spent uh, in terms of salaries uh, rather than necessarily improving greatly uh, productivity. And then finally, no health system in the world has taken 4% cumulative out of the budget year on year and sustained yet let yet a lot, let alone uh, improved uh, quality. So how do we make it work? I'm a public servant like many in this room and it's always been my philosophy to work with the grain work out even if I disagree with some of the things that are proposed how we actually make this work. And I think as far as the uh, GP consortia are concerned I would favour larger consortia and I think there is some move Towards that, we need to develop and adopt health analytics capacity to make that role easier. And primary and secondary care expertise has to come together if we're to provide an integrated service across the primary care divide. An individual patient doesn't care about the primary care distinction. What they want to be is in front of the right healthcare professional at the right point in their illness journey. And it's that they're all interested in the structural niceties uh, of all of this. And that requires an integrated uh, approach to healthcare provision. Big, big challenge is combining this requirement for local responsiveness with the need for some level of over national oversight. And getting that balance uh, right uh, is, I think, is going to be absolutely critical. Um, without that, there is a risk that 
access to specialist services will be uh, inequitable and that equity issue that I've already referred to in terms of um, the localism uh, that might prevail if the commissioning groups are, are too small. To say nothing of the economy of scale that's needed <coughs> to do some of the commissioning functions. I believe that we should be promoting innovation despite the fact I've alluded to some of the difficulties uh, about introducing it. And in London, um, the academic health science systems, this alliance between the health service and academia is playing a very prominent role. So my academic health science centre, UCL Partners, is responsible for developing integrated cancer care for the whole of uh, North Central London, uh, which involves everything from tertiary care at one end through to the preventive strategies and means to ensure that patients come uh, forward earlier uh, in the uh, disease process. I've said already that I believe a trick has been missed in terms of truly uh, empowering patients. And for me, this is the future uh, of many health services. It's ironic in a sense that the same technologies, the e-health technologies, to broadly couch them in that, that term, are providing a means of transforming the transactional relationship between uh, the uh, clinician uh, and the individual uh, in a sophisticated healthcare system, just as they're providing access to healthcare in uh, dispersed uh, and economically deprived uh, communities. The same technology is doing both of those things. And taking greater um, awareness of the fact that social networking <coughs> prevails uh, and that given information people are can be very well equipped to play a much more important part in their own health outcome is something that I think we need to for, firmly embrace. And so I've raced through this but I hope I've um, not uh, dismiss the idea that radical reform is necessary. We can't go on uh, as we are. The supply and demand challenge uh, mean that can't be the case. The proposals that are being put forward uh, are radical proposals, but I would argue uh, they don't necessarily go far enough, either in terms of addressing the funding gap or putting patients in charge. And of course the cynic would say that if this system fails it will simply force uh, a model which is reliant on co-payment or some other uh, financial um, means of, of, of resourcing uh, a nationalised service. Finally, well, will the coalition uh, survive um, these introductions? Health is a hugely politicised uh, issue, particularly in the National uh, Health Service. Um, we know that David Cameron has put his personal imprimatur on this, on this particular uh, initiative um, and one suspects every attempt will be made to drive these changes through. 
the contrast with GP fund holding is that, of course, uh, not all GPs took up GP fund holding, whereas this is a, a system-wide uh, reform. Um, similarly, if all foundation trusts become, if, if all hospitals become foundation trusts, uh, then that is again uh, a system-wide uh, reform. Will the coalition uh, survive? Um, well, I suppose one might have felt that the debacle over student fees would have uh, revealed a schism, but they seem to survive uh, that particular trauma. So my, my guess is at this point in time uh, it probably will, but we'll watch it with uh, keen interest. Thank you very much. Thank you.